Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. Do it and prepare yourself for the consequences. Because you believe in it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Because you're passionate about it does not mean that it's going to work. What you can do is you can prepare yourself in all the ways that you know how to deal with the consequences of your success or failure. And all of it is kind of on you and what you choose to build around you. Born and raised in Jersey, from a sax-playing accountant father and schizophrenic mother, a Harvard graduate, a hedge fund trader, turned professional jazz musician and mathematician, is this week's guest, Marcus G. Miller. In this episode, Marcus explains how he started playing saxophone at age nine and how, through the guidance of a teacher, Michael Gagan, and the mentoring of world-renowned saxophonist Bruce Williams, he ended up on stage at age 13. An avid reader and a world-level fencer, he went on to graduate from Harvard University with a degree in mathematics before joining Ray Dalio's hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates. However, his passion drew him back to New York City to pursue a career as a jazz musician. Marcus has since performed at the Obama White House, Madison Square Garden, the World Economic Forum at Davos, the Montreux Jazz Festival, and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, to name just a few. And he recently spoke at the TED Summit in Edinburgh. Marcus is a genuine polymath and is exploring the structural similarities between math and music to enable creative problem solvers to unlock their imagination and to jam on the world's toughest challenges. I hope you enjoy the intellectual curiosity and expansive imagination of Marcus G. Miller. Marcus. What's happening, Mark? Welcome. Well, what's happening? What's happening? We are about to kick off a really interesting interview, I think. So awesome. welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Mm, glad to be here. And got to give a big shout out and thank you to our friend Merritt Moore, Ooh. the doctor. The genius. The genius ballet dancer, quantum physicist, astronaut mm-hmm. who connected us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Merritt. Yeah, she's so, wonderful. Yeah. So hopefully next time we'll be able to do We're actually thinking... Uh, well, we're not thinking. We are going to be starting a an actual event series called Problems Worth Solving. Oh, okay. Where we're bringing together people that we believe we've interviewed to sit on panels and talk about not just driving awareness, but focusing on how do we create action for change around some of the bigger existential issues and challenges we face as a society. Yeah. And we're lining definitely lining merit up for one of the panels. It's a great idea. So I think it should be fun. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll maybe have to get, get you involved in one of those. Yeah. Sure. So, before we jump in to talk about math and music and your yeah. life and what you're doing now, we'd love to start with your upbringing. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born uh, in New Jersey. I grew up there too. And it was, a, it was a really wonderful place to grow up. As much as a bad rap as Jersey gets, it was great. Which part of Jersey? South Orange, which is right outside of Newark in Essex County, about mm, 45 minutes from the city. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You, not being from the US and being but being in New York 10 years I've got a very specific perception generated probably through media and some people coming in and bridges and tunnels from Jersey about what a Jersey <laughs> is and you definitely don't fit into that 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 definition or that box right. which is great so you're you're sort of uh, redefining what Jersey means to the rest of the world which is great <laughs> always proud to represent now Jersey is a really interesting place for a lot of people well last last time I checked there were over 600 school districts in New Jersey, and 
more municipalities and school districts and Jersey has a whole wide range of different characters so there's the Jersey near the shore there's the you know kind of Asbury Park the Bruce Springsteen kind of Jersey South Jersey um, can get kind of rural northwestern Jersey is like kind of in the woods I'm in a kind of suburban area like there's so many kind of faculties Kind of ways of being in, in New Jersey. It's a, it's a cool place to grow. So what was growing up there like? It was a lot of fun. As a as a musician, one of the cool things about my town is that a lot of musicians who did well ended up moving to my area. So there's a whole generation of really amazing jazz musicians who were just kind of around. Yeah. And that was that was really influential to me growing up. What about your parents? Were they musicians? No. My father was an accountant by training which is kind of where the math thing came in. Mm -hmm. And let's see, he played saxophone in college. And the reason I started playing saxophone is because when they were passing out instruments in fourth grade, we already had one in the attic. So rather than have to buy one or rent one or deal with the school in that way, we just kind of got the one that we had fixed. And he taught me how to play a little bit. And uh, and I went from there. And what about siblings? Uh, I have one little sister. She is 16. And she just won the state championship in volleyball. I just got the text yesterday. <laughs> so she's doing really well. Yep. And, uh, and your yeah. mother? My mother is uh, my mother's kind of an interesting case. She's um, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And she, I grew up with her till I was about six years old. And then, you know, after a, a few incidents, it was decided that, you know, my parents were going to split. She ended up moving back to Detroit with the rest of my extended family. And, and so I'd see her kind of periodically. I actually did a lot of flying to Detroit because, like I said, the rest of my extended family was there. So my father's family, my mother's family. So we're there for all the holidays. And I would kind of go more often to, to visit with people while we were figuring that transition out. You're obviously, it was your father's in, uh, influence and impact that, that led you into music. Mm -hmm. Did you discover that you had a natural aptitude for it? And how did that, at, at age nine, which I believe is when you started playing, mm -hmm. Did you, st did you start to see a connection, even at that early age, between math and music? No, I was just kind of a curious kid. I was good at a lot of things. You know, I was always good at school. And then whatever extracurriculars I did, I was kind of, I was kind of good at. And there wasn't really, you know, as a, as a kid, a lot of, I think for me, the the desire to do things and, and be good at things, I think, was, was actually very egoic and competitive. It was just like, all right, well, you know, I'm here, so I want to win. And if I can be the best saxophone player in the school or something like that, like, I'm going to do that. And, you know, if, I'm, if I can, you know, hang out with all the, the people who are doing really awesome. And, you know, that that stemmed from, you know, that's like most things that has this like light shadow component, right? Like you you part of it you do things because it feels good to to be excellent and 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 you know be praised by your peers and that kind of thing but then part of it was you know compensation for ways that i you know felt very out of place socially and 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 emotionally you know as a as a teenager and a preteen you know middle school and high school can be pretty intense and difficult so you know one of the ways that i felt one of the things that that i definitely went through and and i think a lot of musicians people in general who are successful kind of work through is this like idea that by succeeding you're you're getting back at you know people who you know didn't make you feel so good at a younger age and that and actually like definitely as a kid like that was part of it like all right well you're gonna be mean to me well you're gonna see when i'm successful and you're gonna feel real bad about it because i'm gonna be famous and in lights and doing cool stuff so it's like that kind of attitude and you know they they both kind of serve as motivation you just kind of the, the second one stops being of service after a while it ends up being a drag but you know it was helpful at the time
who was mentoring you? Who was your guiding you through those early years? Oh man, who, who spotted that talent? I mean, I, obviously your father could yeah. sense it. Yeah, I had so many great mentors. My first, my first saxophone teacher that wasn't my father was a guy named Michael Geegan. He was the um, band director at the middle school, and my father had taught me uh, about a month before school started. He taught me a little bit of saxophone. He taught me how to play tequila. And so I go in the first day of school knowing how to play tequila. <laughs> and they're all going, who is <laughs> <Yeah>. this? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And, and so the vendor is like, uh, you should stay after school. You should, you should hang out with me for like a half an hour after school is done. I want to show you some stuff on, <laughs> on, about music. So, you know, we did that. And he taught me for a year before um, his career took him kind of abroad. Um, and he's still doing super well. Um, I saw him play. I think last year in down down in New York and he has his own studio he's producing he's doing wonderful stuff but then after him um I had this teacher named uh Bruce Williams oh yeah and and there was a there was another saxophone player who I guess when I was in fifth grade he was in eighth grade and he was like the the best saxophone player in the region and I was listening to him and I you know you uh, used to feeling you know pretty puffed up and then he deflated me real quick when I'm like oh well, I can't do all that. <laughs> who is he? Who is he studying with? So I went and, and, and started studying with, with his teacher. And that was a guy by the name of Bruce Williams. And Bruce, Bruce is definitely like one of the foremost like seminal mentors and influences in my life. And in, in terms of music, but also in terms of, you know, just life navigating, moving through the earth effectively. And I also have to credit my father because my father saw you know, qualities in Bruce that, you know, Bruce could teach me certain things that my father, for whatever reason, couldn't, just wasn't his experience. So he definitely put Bruce there to, to, you know, help grow me like as a man. And, and that influence has been really wonderful throughout my life. And what did he, he taught me so much. First of all, he gave me like all the repertoire, all the things, all the right things to listen to, kind of the attitude behind the music, things to read outside of music that kind of opened my mind. And, and yeah, just, I mean, he would have me come in on jam sessions. He had me sub for him on gigs, you know, and I was, I remember I was like Age 14, four. I was like 14 or 15 wow. or something like that. He had me sub for him on these, like, like on his gigs. He's like, yeah, man, my flight's late. I'm not going to be able to make this gig. You got to sub for me. <gasps> really? <gasps> Am I ready? Yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> what, in gigs in what, New Jersey? Or yeah, New yeah, York? yeah. All over New Jersey and mostly in Jersey. I played a couple of gigs in New York as a kid, but I was mostly playing around Jersey. Yeah. Were you a confident child? Yes and no. Confident in things that I knew I was good at. I, not so much in things that I wasn't or things where I just kind of felt out of place. You know, like I, I don't really feel like I was like very like popular, like a, you know, influential person in my school. Like not trying to be. I didn't feel like I held that position. Like after the fact, I guess people are like, yeah, Marcus, man, we, we, really, we really liked you. We looked up to you, this, that, and the third. But I didn't really like sense that. That wasn't a thing that I had. Because one of, one of the things that we've, We've encountered sort of almost two directions of some of the guests that we've interviewed. Those that sure. have grown up with a great sense of self-belief. Those that have been given the support and the conf- instilled confidence in them from their parents and from their mentors and the people around them and, and gu- you know guiding teachers. Mm-hmm. But then there's those that have grown up with a deep sense of insecurity and, and lack of self-worth. And it's even where they've had an environment that's been safe. There's still been that that sense of self doubt. Right. Where do you sit on that spectrum? It's a it's a it's definitely both. Yeah, it's a pra- it's a paradox. The you because it sounds like your father was a very caring, sort of influential, oh, supportive yeah. individual in your right. life, and obviously Bruce Williams as well played mm-hmm. that role. Hmm. Yep. And and yeah, and there there were a lot of people who who offered me that kind of care and support. And there's also just you know. 
a, a degree to which one of the other things you, you deal with, especially I think as a, a young boy, is you know the sense of like hero worship. Mm-hmm. Like there are certain people who you look up to, whether they're real people or whether they're historical figures, and they occupy this kind of like archetypal ideal. And you know, striving to become like them, striving to you know be on that level, wondering if it's something that's possible for you, kind of defining your worth around that standard becomes a thing and that's always a thing that isn't real and doesn't really exist and so if you're so one of the I think paradoxes of being ambitious and being talented is that when you start going for that you realize how wide the gulf is and you realize that you you may not get there you might not be quote-unquote good enough to get there and you just kind of like sit and live with that um, forever even as you accomplish and even as you succeed at things so yeah, I, I was. I would definitely say I had you know certain amount of confidence with respect to my peer group, but like in terms of like my larger place in the world and ability to to make that real, like no, it was it was really scary. Did you have any sense at uh, that an early age, let's say when you were getting up on stage and you know standing in for for Bruce, that your career would go on the trajectory it has? No. What did you What did you think? You must have. Been, I mean, everyone at age fourteen has an idea what they want to do. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've said before in the podcast, I want to be a fighter pilot. You know, right, but right, you, right. you know, you must. You know, I ended up in advertising. But what were you thinking? What were you thinking, age fourteen? You know, part of like I said, part of the thing is I was talented and skilled at like a, a great many things. I was also uh, I was also a fencer, and I was ranked in the country and did a couple of like world tournament, international tournaments in fencing. And so, you know, there was this idea of, and at that time, the the predominant narrative, and it still kind of is, but it's broken now, but the predominant narrative was, you know, you do high school so that you can go to the best college possible. Mm -hmm. And then from there, your life is set. It's just kind of like a haze. And so, and so I couldn't really see, there's this weird horizon that hit like after college. Like, I don't know what's supposed to happen then. I can't really see where I fit in the world with all these kind of interests and, and, and different kind of talents and skills. It's like, all right, well, what, what am I going to do? And that was actually not clear. I didn't have a sense of a career or, you know, what life meant after that narrative. Okay. So I'm getting a, an early sense of you being another merit, a real polymath, excuse the pun around math, but, <laughs> but you've got obviously a, a love and a talent for fencing that doesn't come easy. That's practice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> being a great saxophonist, doesn't come easy that takes practice yeah, yeah you might be a math genius and your mind might be wired in a certain way far but from I, genius but i, I, but I, <laughs> but I do believe also that takes dedication and skill so yeah. how do you balance that that i mean clearly you went on to focus on math at university right um so that's an interesting story um my kind of development in math was i was i was fairly precocious as a kid i remember you know my father was doing like an executive MBA program. So he'd bring home like, all right, here's how you, we calculate like bond valuations. And it'd be these like long strings of, you know, mathematical symbols. And I just kind of sit and do that with him. Oh, okay, cool. Piece of zero, this and that, this and that. And, and, you know, I really like numbers and sequences and that kind of thing. And I remember in fifth grade, I had a teacher who, who kind of pulled me aside and gave me this book by Kip S. Thorne, Black Hole, Black Holes and Time Warps, which was kind of like a pop science, but pretty dense book on astrophysics. And would give me these, you know, workbooks, algebra workbooks that I didn't know, but they were like intended for high school kids. And, you know, I just kind of sit and do them. He's like, just, just see what you do with this. And then in sixth grade, I had a teacher with whom I disagreed. And, and I can, at this point in my life, I'm willing to say that the, the blame probably goes both ways. 
And but, you know, as a little kid, my kind of reaction was like, well, I don't like you, so I don't like math. And I kind of stopped trying. So you weren't disagreeing about sort of basic principles of mathematics. You no, were just, we're just, just, that was just attitude. attitude yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, I was probably in that class, a little obnoxious sixth grade know-it-all. And she probably had some kind of she felt some kind of way about that, whatever it was, dealt with it, how she dealt with it. And, you know, but my attitude, my attitude from then on was, well, I don't like you. So therefore, I don't like math. my way of getting back at you is to not do math and like not really knowing that I'm like putting myself behind. But, you know, that that's what you think as a little kid or that's what I thought as a little kid. And so I wasn't really enthusiastic about math until I got to university. I kind of when I was in a lot of people yeah. would be knocked off track. I mean, I had that with a French teacher, but you pursued even though you had a disagreement and thought you didn't like math, you still went on to focus on that in university. How did that happen? Yeah, freshman year I had a really good time and sophomore year I thought, well, I should make the most of my education while I'm here. And in the summer between, I took a look at every course in the catalog that I'd ever want to take. You know, just, I don't have to feel like I have to have any prerequisites or like existing skills, just like what do I want to learn while I'm here? And kind of to my surprise, because at that point I didn't think of myself as, you know, mathy, the courses that showed up most were like math, physics, and computer science. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, when am I going to be able to learn this again? If I want to learn history or like literature, I can just pick up a book and read it because, you know, I'm pretty good at English. But, you know, math and physics, like that, that probably takes some training. And this is probably one of the best places in the world to train. So why not give it a shot? And so I took a math class like level two calculus, which is like pretty low as far as Harvard math goes, pretty low starting place as far as Harvard math goes. And I was just like, I love this. I want to do this all the time. I don't even want to party. I just want to hang out in the science library and like learn more about what this stuff is. And so, yeah, through sophomore, junior and most of senior year, you know, I, was, I just kind of did math all the time. Okay. So I want to bring in this, this connection because you're, you've appropriated this, this territory of the intersection of math and music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did this connection sort of hit you? When I see you speak about it and when I hear, uh, read about what you've been doing, it's almost like math is code. And within that code, that code transcends into music and you can see this, this unifying language. Oh, man. This is the great question that if I figure out what the thing actually is, hopefully that will be some kind of like, contribution to human knowledge if I, I like I honestly don't know really it starts with I like both of these things and in my life when I've tried to live through live out my career ignoring one I just get really sad inside which is like no this is not gonna work this is dysfunctional somehow and and the and the thing that I'm focusing on at the expense of the other also also breaks so so but you know both of these paths are, are hard Right. Like there was one example is there was a moment where I enrolled in a course, a theoretical physics course at Columbia University. And I was having the time of my life, except I was never sleeping and I wasn't doing that good at music or in this course because I'm, you know, bright, but I'm not the guy who can, you know, like never sleep and, you know, do theoretical physics and be out all night as a musician. Like I'm, I'm not that guy. But I love like doing this so much. How do I how do I put these together? Given that if I go to grad school and like can't do music because I'm doing math all the time, I'm going to be really sad inside. And if I'm trying to just be a musician and not touching this like math thing, then I'm going to be really sad inside. And so I just started kind of investigating and searching for, you know, what what kind of constitutes this connection? I think for me, the the connection is in the kind of subjective 
creative process of doing both. Uh, what's the easiest way to say this? If you check out this book, Tadas Logical Philosophicus by Wittgenstein, at the end of it, it's a, it's a really good book, it's a really hard book, but at the end of it, he talks about this idea of at base level, there's reality, there are facts as is. And then a step, a step up from that is the propositions of logic. These propositions of logic form a mesh, form a grid. And being able to calculate on this grid allows you to pinpoint certain things in reality because you can look through the grid and point to the thing. But the problem is, is that these propositions can't actually talk about reality because they don't touch reality. They only touch themselves. So they're all kind of tautological and like they're all actually like all of logic is actually already done. We have to figure it out. But like that's kind of there. And he makes the connection. It's like this is also how physics is. Right. Propositions of physics are all complete by because they follow laws of logic like there's rigorous mathematics and that's also a debate but like we won't go into that just like let that live for now but they're not actually touching reality reality is something different and so it it feels like there's this that the the structure of the language of mathematics as well as the language of music are both good at pointing at this underlying reality not defining it but pointing at it in a way that other languages ironically semantic languages like aren't so good at mm-hmm. like but it like yes and no I, like i don't know it's it it's a it is deep but it's the subjective experience of creating and playing around with these structures and feeling how they interface with reality that's that's kind of the connection so do you feel that there's a unification between music and math in that logic layer that you were talking about there's it's not a unification it's it's an overlap it's an intersection yeah. there's, a, there's they both share this kind of structure yeah there there's, there's an underlying structure so it's like so goethe said i'm reading goethe right now yeah we checked out faust yeah. it's it's, yeah, it's it's really heavy so like goethe said that uh was it like architecture is frozen music i think that's goethe and and you know the converse would be that like you know music is flowing architecture and then and then you know the ancient greeks had this concept of you know music being like geometry but in time and and so like what both of these things point to like this architecture this geometry mathematics logic music right is you're dealing with structure you're dealing with space space asterisk like it's not physical space it's this this kind of like psychic space noetic space and you're applying you're putting certain boundaries on it because those boundaries allow you to have certain experiences or insight into the nature of what's below the lot what's below the structure itself this reality how that actually works i i, I don't know <laughs> I, I i like i experienced this i sense this when when i'd like do things but but you know what it actually is how to how to uh, how to investigate it whether it's actually just like a neurological product that that we could say okay cool there's biology behind this like let's map mm-hmm. the brain and figure out how to do this as if that were that easy you know like that that's kind of where i think these things live i've seen this quote of yours which um is math can be experienced in play as much as music yeah is that touching on what you're discussing here? And can you expand on how that can have an impact on other disciplines and, and, and in broader terms in society? Yeah. So 
One of my good friends, Rob Schneiderman, he's a international jazz piano player, and he's also a topologist at Lehman College. Very, like, many published papers. And he's like, yeah, when mathematicians get together, we jam on problems the way that musicians jam on tunes. And for him, it's not a metaphor. He does both, like, at a very high level. So, you know, kind of socially, it's like, well, you get together and there's, like, a hard problem to solve. And everybody's just kind of kicking around ideas and you play with the logic, you see where it goes. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the it doesn't work and that allows you to have another idea about what might be possible or help you draw some connection to something far away. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if everything lives on this grid, like the grid is all interconnected, yeah. but it isn't. But like the way you get from point A to point B is nonlinear. So, you know, kind of within that, it's really important to have a sense of fun when you're dealing with math or music you can approach it very seriously and from my experience what that does is it kind of it 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 constricts it constricts your range of awareness Mm -hmm. and it constricts your range of possibilities but when when you're kind of lighter and more fun with with the approach then you know you you get access to more and that's that's you know given all the talk about like structure and like architecture and this that and the third like why fun should serve as part of that like that's kind of a mystery yeah what you're discussing is sort of colliding with a lot of the big terms and concepts that we like to explore so the importance of imagination the importance of curiosity what is serendipity when you've some random events or experiences or people or situations collide together on a grid let's say right that this feels that there's something underlying and you know you talk about the importance of imagination and curiosity in terms of for math and clearly when you're solving problems, and, and this is something that Merritt said as well, as to how creativity manifests itself in her work. Yeah. It's never, she never solves problems in a linear, logical way. Nope. It's always through some form of random, serendipitous moment or spark that appears out of nowhere. And yeah. how you can explain that, and in, <clears throat> in terms, it goes back to your thing about there's the reality, yet in reality, an idea suddenly forms out of nowhere and where does that come from right yeah i i, I don't know i think that you know the the way i think about another like kind of structural thing i think about in terms of math and music is that you know you have these ideas on a page you have like a written out score you have a set of chord changes or you have some rhythms something that you're hearing and similarly in math you have like symbolic systems and but that's not like actually what the math is or what the music is right what it actually is is very individual to each person. In music, that's kind of obvious because we know it's subjective. But in math, it's it's also that way because in order to imagine what the things you're doing, like everybody has a different way of like sensing, you know, how these how these processes that are written down as logical like unfold. And so, you know, because of that, because of like the what what I imagine is just kind of the wide range of understanding and interpreting things, you get this thing where you know what the next step is what the proper next step is like that's going to be as like differentiated for everybody as the kind of system and structure that you have for imagining and like processing and metabolizing these ideas are so yeah this kind of idea of serendipity this this spark is like all right well you're building like another room in your house your particular house of understanding that that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I, I understand it and so then 
the the reason that you do it all the time is just so you get really skilled with the tools so that these sparks so that when these sparks uh, come you have the facility to actually like execute on them but where they come from yeah like sure like underlying reality below the grid like i, I don't know what that is the other thing I'm, i mean we were we were interviewing mike yeah michael hatcher hansen who is director master's concentration in creativity and cognition um, uh, at columbia he's really interesting theoretical creativity oh yeah and, and i'd love to get you two together in terms of how they are doing a lot of work into really understanding what creativity is mm, in, in a yeah, theoretical and, a, and in terms of a, the application of it. it we were talking in that interview just about how einstein einstein's approach to learning and the application of imagination for solving problems right. and one of the things that i'm fascinated by and and you hear it so often the importance of imagination and just allowing getting into that sort of different from a neurological standpoint the different brain states in terms of getting out of beta beginning into alpha theta but it still doesn't negate the need for unbelievably uh, an unbelievable amount of hard work application discipline all these principles yeah. that underlie where you've got to so there's no shortcuts to it no 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 you still have to get the determination to get to that level. Right. To then, at some point, something unlocks that next spark. Right. That next idea that moves on the discipline that solves a problem. Right. 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 How do you how do you sort of balance practice and progression in terms of your discipline against that nurturing your curiosity and natural and your sparking your imagination? Right. So. So yeah, I think that the basic premise where you you actually have to you have to train yourself to be available to receive the idea, like that's definitely a theme that that cuts across. And I would say that for me, like I'm pretty structured in terms of like how I how I like you know order my life and like what I do every day and the kind of things that I work on and and, and train with because. I mean, like, there's this great book called, like, The War of Art by this guy named Stephen Pressfield. And, you know, his basic thesis is, like, the thing that's stopping you from, from doing anything worthwhile is this abstract thing called the resistance. And the resistance is anything that keeps you from spending a consistent time daily on your work. It's every excuse. It's every life circumstance. Like, almost in a Jungian thing, it's like, if there's a life circumstance, like, you actually put it there. Like, your psyche arranged it to be there so that you can overcome it so that you can get to the thing. But if you are defeated by it, then, like, that's actually you defeating yourself because you put it. It's like, it's, it, it, it's really deep. But, but, it's, but it is actually really interesting yeah. because uh, Nia Ayal has just written a book, who wrote the book Hooked, about creating habit-forming products which is part of the issue that most of us do get yeah. distracted and his new book is called about distraction yeah and how can we actually take get traction back in our lives yeah by understanding what is creating our lack of attention on the things that are important to us oh yeah, yeah. Us to be more conscious and it just feels to me that and taking back to that discussion that that reference to the grid that it's almost that that life is conspiring to hold people back from pro progressing to where the their poor, their sheer natural human potential is, but some people push through. They get yeah. to the boundary. They get to the boundary of of cognition, of learning, and then want to go further. And that's the point at which new discoveries, new ideas, new concepts come into the world. Yeah, sure. Um, I know what I do to to counteract that kind of to thing. Get to that point, and, and that book, the um, the war. Not the art of war, because that's, <laughs> that's the war of art. Yeah, uh, applying those lessons. How do you? How does structure manifest itself in your day-to-day? -day? Let's see. One, social media is the worst. It's really bad for you. And and so 
you know, for a while I was just like not even using it. You know, I had somebody running my Instagram for me and, you know, I wouldn't really check it out. And then, you know, I kind of got back on them, like figuring out how to, you know, best use it to, to offer value. That's a, that's a challenge, but I'm rarely on social media. I, uh, my phone is on grayscale so that when I look at it, I'm not addicted. And it's funny, if I ever turn the colors back on, it looks like I just like ate a whole bag of Skittles at once. Wow. Like it's really a sensory overload. And you know, the co- like the colors are really unnatural. They're designed to like make you wanna do this and like, you know, go really, really look at your phone. So, so yeah, I keep my phone on grayscale. I have a like very robust meditation practice, mm-hmm. practice Kung Fu. So there's like a lot of Qigong and like physical discipline that goes into that. In the morning, I, when I wake up, I read from a math textbook and play like through a Bach chorale as best I can. Like it's all, all of these things that just kind of like prime my mind. Most, most creative work, I start out longhand. So I like do a lot of free writing. I go through like a ton of Muji notebooks when I'm figuring stuff out. I, try to stay away. I tried not to do things on screens kind of as much as possible. And I have like a, a group of friends who's on a similar thing. So we kind of discuss and, 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 you know, deal with best practices and keep each other accountable and, and, and that kind of thing to, to, to move forward and keep everything organized. Do you think there is a growing movement of people that are embracing these practices that you're like you're discussing moving away from screens, getting into grayscale, speaking more, creating more human connection? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I see it around me somewhat. I wouldn't say that most of the people around me are like that. Most mm-hmm. of the people around me are, you know, they're on their phone a lot. Yeah. And this is most of the people, I think, who have phones and, like, who have access to that kind of thing. I know that I like to connect with people who who operate this way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, and I get more, I get closer to what I'm seeking and what I'm after and I have, feel like I have a higher ability to like add to the lives of others when I'm when I'm in this way. So, so I do it, whether it, you know, is some ultimate good or virtue, like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so you've had a really interesting story, life story so far, because yeah. you left Harvard and ended up as a hedge fund yeah, manager yeah, yeah. or trader. Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? And how did you then sort of go from being working in, as a, in, a, with a, in a hedge fund yeah. to then performing in the White House and speaking at Davos? Yeah, yeah. So let's see. It's not your average story. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fun. So you know, when uh, when I was doing math in college, at that point, I had almost completely decided, especially before second semester senior, I completely decided that I was going to do something with math in my life. Period. I mean, I wasn't going to be a musician. One, two, two things happened. One, I did a research program the summer before my senior year. And that let me know that I didn't want to go to grad school immediately because, you know, I wanted to like be out. I want to be where the people are, see them dancing, walking around, you know, whole vibe. So I knew that I wasn't going to go to grad school immediately. And what's the other thing you do if you have a math degree from Harvard after graduating? Well, you work at a hedge fund, of course. So that's what I did. And so, you know, that with that particular degree, it wasn't a difficult you know, job to get an entry Your father position must be in the hedge fund. Joyous. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He yeah, thought it was pretty like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was pretty cool. And then the second thing that happened was that Thanksgiving of senior year, a good friend of mine who had uh, who I'm still one of my best friends to today, he's a musician, and he called me. And he said, "Marcus, on Monday you have a gig in New York." I'm like, "Bro, I go to school in Boston. I don't even really play like that anymore." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. You told me, but you have this gig though." And your name is on the gig and you got to come <laughs> to the gig. I'm like, I, uh, Boston, bro. Like, how am I going to get these? Like, yeah, it's at seven o'clock. They have buses. You'll be there. 
And so I went and that turned into a regular gig throughout all of my second semester senior year. So I'd commute, I'd leave my class at two, I'd hop on a bus at three, wow. I'd get to the I'd get to New York at seven. The gig started at like nine and I would hang out at nine. We actually had two gigs. There's three of us that we, you know, bounced back and forth between these two gigs. One at Minton's, which is like a famous jazz club in uh, uptown, very historic jazz club, and the other is Saint Nick's Pub, which is also a historic jazz club. Unfortunately it closed, but it was like a real part of the, the scene and the culture for a long time. And so we'd play those i'd hang out till six in the morning hop the bus back to boston get there roughly in time for my 11 o'clock real analysis class and that was my that was my monday second semester so i had both of these things kind of going at once when i started work at the the fun it was a great place to be actually i have no qualms with the firm and the leadership and the thought process behind it and all of that but you know i just knew i could see like my reflection from behind the excel spreadsheet looking back at me like what what are we doing here you're a creative person like you don't need to be here and eventually you know at first i'm like man shut up we're making money shut up shut up shut up but <laughs> but then eventually you know he won out the reflection won out and i left um and you know, there's so much internal conflict. I wasn't like awesome at that job because I didn't. My my spirit didn't really want to be there, and I couldn't, you know, kind of keep my. I couldn't keep that down effectively. I couldn't keep it quiet enough to kind of keep my head down and just just push through. So I left, um, moved to New York, interned at a music studio, started playing. Before I started making any any money in music, I was doing a lot of tutoring in math and like SAT and physics for like high school and college kids, and. You know, eventually I just got better at music and, you know, made more, you know, widened my circles and got some really cool opportunities. So that point, that transition away from what your father was probably ecstatic about, you being in the hedge fund, to follow a life your true passions of math and music, did they support you in that decision? Yeah, yeah, they were fully supportive. Yeah. There, there are times when, you know, They'll look at what I'm doing and my thought process behind it. They'll disagree, but they generally have a confidence that I'll that I'll figure it out. Yeah. So you know there weren't too many you know real tough like what are you doing with your life kind of conversations. There was a lot of well you know we kind of know how to help you with this corporate thing. We don't know how to help you in the music industry. Mm -hmm. So you know let us know what what you need us to do that thing you're the, the way you're kind of going about doing that or setting up this business thing or like doing this career that i don't think that's gonna work but you know you you'll you'll get to it i'm not gonna run your life for you so they yeah they've always been so fully how supportive how do you describe what you do now <sighs> i i, I kind of talk about the question i'm going after i mean you know basically i'm a a professional musician and recording artist that's how I, that's how i make money you know record saxophone in studios and play saxophone on stage and you know i also produce and create a whole bunch of other things and that kind of thing and now the other thing that makes me money is you know talking about what i'm interested in in you know various places mm -hmm. so you know that's that's the that's what i do for money what i do and what i care about and you know all of that is tied into these questions it's the search mm -hmm. it's a search for you know this this kind of large question about like on a on a very on a yeah on a, on a on a high either very high or very deep level like what actually is this connection and is it something that can be understood and utilized or is it something that is just kind of a nice experience for me and you know the the peculiar way that my mind is wired we're very passionate about education and we ask a question yeah. about if you had the keys to the white house what would you do to change the fortunes of children by changing the education system for the better what, yeah. what, what would you start with 
Yeah. Um, assuming no kind of like a, a, a big picture, assuming no like logistical things and like having to move a, a current system to a new system, yeah. like all of that thing going away. Definitely experiencing develop finding ways to develop to develop curiosity and play and imagination in kids, I think is the I think is the most important thing when you what I've found in teaching is that when you're able to teach when you're when you're able to get people to a place where they're able to think freely about something or they have enough tools and enough skills to be able to think freely about something then they kind of gravitate toward it that's something that they just want to do and be involved in because they can actualize the curiosity this is really really obvious to jazz musicians by the way because the whole point of the what what you're practicing when you play jazz music is to be free and open enough to improvise in the way that we're having a conversation right now and be fearless right well it's 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 actually you can express fear in the in the in the playing right like it's it's really just like an expression of your personality right if you're feel, feeling fearful and you want to like think about like really the language analogy is is really good neurologically it's not complete but it's really good for for discussing the experience is that you know when a bunch of jazz musicians are playing what's happening is a conversation there is a specific grammar to it there is a specific there's a there's a point there's a there's a key idea if it's a conversation like most kind of social conversations that key idea shifts over time mm -hmm. what is the topic and you know how is everybody reacting or responding to that to be able to do that effectively like as a human being just talking you have to have enough of a command of language and higher level conversations are going to mean that you've done a certain amount of research or reading or have particular insights and mm -hmm. this is the same as in music right this is the same as in jazz music you the higher level musicians are going to have listened to more music have digested more music be able to speak it more clearly on their instruments be able to arrange the ideas in a in a in a meaningful fashion and, you know, whereas lower level musicians are doing the same thing, but they, you know, just don't have as much information or skills. And I think this is the same as in when, when you know, Schneiderman was saying, you know, mathematicians jam on problems. It's the same thing. It's like you can't jam on some problem in four dimensional topology because you don't know anything about four dimensional topology. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if you put in the work to get those skills together, like you do in language, you could probably do it. Right. Um, it's just a specific kind of work. And unlike language, we're not doing it all the time. So it seems harder or more abstract. But yeah, that's that's very much the case. It's like this the the language thing and the discussion thing. So what what do you teach? What do you teach kids? Right to go back to that question is like you know, you you have to have a certain amount of like basic training and skills. But then there's a there's a degree of you know how do you how do you think freely? How do you get to this point where I can play an instrument or I can discuss nineteenth century literature or I can you know, do whatever you want to do with the same freedom that you do when you're having a conversation with another person in a language that you mm -hmm. speak effectively. And, it, and of course, it's a challenge with the the use of technology, the, the problem that parents are dealing with, with their own sort of stresses and handing screens to children. Right. And how, leaving aside the system that currently exists, which is still grounded in the last century. Right. And that there's got to be a need for the evolution in terms of how we... As I think Yuval Noah Harari says, to embrace the four C's of communication, creativity, I think connection, and I think curiosity. But, but that is a very different sort of change to the way that current the cur current school system set up. Yeah, 
we're going to get into the quick fire questions, but I just want to ask one question in terms of, because you've talked about curiosity, but how does creativity manifest itself in your day to day, given you are, you're, what you do is just inherently creative, but is it something that you're, you're conscious of that you nurture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Structure gives you creativity. The best way to think about this is... That's, re that's really yeah. interesting, because a lot of people would think that creativity is, is not about structure. It's about non-structure. No, 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 no. Structure gives you creativity. It's the same thing. It's the same paradox as like the Jocko Wilnick thing, like yeah. discipline equals freedom. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait, what are you talking about? It was like, actually, no, that's, that's correct. The, the reason is, the, the best way to think about it is if you are in space, mm -hmm. right, you have full range of motion but you can't actually touch or affect anything. And so, and, and it's really unclear if your decisions have any impact on anything. So you can't create anything solid. Uh -huh. When you have a boundary, like that gives you kind of a first order thing, like, all right, I have a, a limited set of options. From that limited set of options, I can also, I can create more structure. Uh -huh. Like structure kind of begets, because when you're creating something, like I said, like math and music, like what it is is building structures, right? Art, every, everything is like, whether you're, you know, doing comp setting up the composition in some visual or something like that, like you're mm -hmm. you're you're invite you're introducing a structure into, you know, reality where there perhaps was none or where there's an opportunity for one. It's interesting. Having worked in advertising, we always worked with um, creative briefs, and mm -hmm. the tighter the brief, the better the creative idea that comes yeah. out of it, because yep. you are constraining, you're creating limitations, and the more limited you are, the more you have to. Think. And, and this is something that Michael, funnily enough, going back to Michael Hatch Hansen, doesn't like the term out of the box thinking. But you do have to sort of go beyond the sort of the limit, challenge the limitations to come up with that that spark, that completely lateral thought. Right. So yeah, I'm with you on, on structure and, and limitations. They're a good. They're a good thing to to embrace. Yeah. Can we get into the quick fire questions? Sure. Okay. So, what principles do you live by or stand by? It is. Even if it's not true, it's really useful to believe that you are the decider of every circumstance and result of your life. Mm -hmm. That could open up a big discussion that wouldn't be quick far about free will. <laughs> yeah, 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 it, it, it would. And once again, I, I start, I always start that with, I don't know if it's true mm -hmm. because it doesn't need to be to make it useful. And I think it's more important for it to be useful than to be true once again logic language lives here the reality is yeah. there we actually can't touch that but thing. it's grounded in yourself your own belief yeah. system that yeah. everything is within your domain and control yep. yep okay not heard that one before what hard choices have you had to make that have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision figuring out what to do after leaving the, the nice six-figure job um <laughs> <laughs> that was that was not easy Figuring out how to, yeah, there. I, I remember there was a moment where, oh yeah, tough, tough choices like how to, how to figure out. There was there was a moment where I had two jobs that I just gotten, so they weren't paying yet, and I had like nineteen dollars to my name and like a bag of bananas and like a rice or something like that for like two weeks, three weeks, something like that. So it's like, all right, well, how do I function um, here? How do I decide? to constitute my life so that I can chase this big abstract question about which all of my hypotheses may be wrong and still go out and, and talk about it and learn and, and be open to whatever consequences show up with that. Mm -hmm. The place of 
being a creative freelancer, I think, is is a tough choice every day, especially when, you know, the other 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 sure and more stable options are available to you. Because I'm I'm not the person where like this is all I got. I got to do this. Like psychologically, it is, but you know, like in reality, I have I could do other mm-hmm. things. And there have been times where I've, where I very much wanted to. In times of like disillusionment or just just straight up being broke. But yeah, continuing to press on with uh, press on through the uncertainty, metabolize that, and take the consequences, take ownership of the consequences, be they as they may. It's in the term we've used a lot in the other interviews that unite a lot of the guests is the intersection of what you're good at and what you're passionate about. Yeah. You seem to define that, and it's a Japanese term. Ikagi. Ikagi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I just think is interesting that the way you talk just seems to be you, you've found that unification. Yeah, yeah. Where do you go um, to discover new ideas where you need space to think? Physically or... I, I always I have I always have a bunch of books on me. So like when I was talking about Instagram, right? Like I had a bunch of followers that my, you know, my crew built up for me. And I'm like, well, how do I use this? Well... Let me. I just decided to start like posting books that I read and like long captions about them. And it's less popular than what was what was being put up before in terms of you know analytics. But it's like real value. But the influence so, is great, yeah. right? Josh but, Holland, um, someone we interviewed, does that as well. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just read a ton. The best books that I've read over the past month include *Big Zarathustra* by Nietzsche. Um, reading *Faust* now. Aeon by Carl Jung was mm. was really life changing and impactful. A bunch of you know like different math and physics books. I think Tony Morrison and James Baldwin are probably my favorite practitioners of like the English language and prose at least. Mm. And yeah, I have um, I'm looking forward to like Paradise Lost and some Sappho mm. and yeah mythology Sundiata, which is like this mythology from Mali. It's I cast a wide net. I certainly do. Yeah. And well, a big part of that is like these math and music things are their own silos, but the bridge between them hasn't been built if there is one. And so it's like, well, that means that the information contained in each of those independently like probably won't do it or else probably somebody would have done it already. So it's like, all right, well, where's like information in the world? Like how do you how do we like exist such that this, I, I don't know. It's a hard question. Mm. <laughs> God, this could take us down a completely new direction for a second interview, but we'll come back to that. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Everybody. Oh my gosh, I reevaluate myself all the time. There is. So, definitely. Intimate partnership is always something that forces you to reevaluate yourself because mm-hmm. you have this this very close up mirror. Then there are mentors I have now. So I study classical composition with a guy from Juilliard. He's the internet says he's the the world's foremost expert on Johann Sebastian Bach. So I figure if I want to learn about Western music and that tradition, yeah, like he's man. the yeah. guy, and it's been one of the most rewarding experiences. Best one of the best musical decisions I've ever made for myself. And the perspective that he's given me, you know, how I conceived of music before and had been really successful with versus how I conceive of it now having studied with him is, you know, completely different. And I always have to reevaluate, you know, he's like, no, you should try this note. Why, why that note? And as I understand why that note and why not the other note in deeper and deeper ways, I'm just like, wow, 
and it's almost yeah it's almost embarrassing to like listen to stuff that i did before it's like i didn't know that oh i was going around not knowing that and playing i, I studied like i said i study martial arts so you know my sifu forces me to 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 reevaluate and and rethink everything being dealing with people from various walks of life so like musicians and mathematicians are like not the same person so like when people say math is music it's like have you hung out with mathematicians and musicians like that's not the same there's not many people like you (laughs) (laughs) straddle those two worlds right and and then you know but by being in by being in music and traveling so much i'm around a lot of different people and it forces me to like definitely reevaluate and think about how the ways in which I value myself mm-hmm. and the ways in which because when you value something right gets put on a scale you can't I don't think you can value something and then be non-judgmental at the same time Mm -hmm. like that's not a thing like if something is valuable it implies that something is less valuable and now you have judgment and this is built into the thing right so the problem is is that when you value yourself highly you want to think highly of yourself well that means in order for that to exist you must necessarily value something else lowly and you're going to be judgmental at least on a subconscious level even if you're trying to be like very good and not judgmental of people like that kind of thing like it's going to kick in and so how do you how do you deal with that so you know there's this trick i learned from music and it applies to everything where you whenever i'm listening to music even if it's music i really can't stand I always try to find something that I didn't know before, an idea that didn't occur to me or something that I can't do. And what that does is sometimes the thing that uh, sometimes the key idea that I take away is like, don't do that. But it turns from don't do that because it's bad uh-huh. is like, don't do that because this doesn't resonate with your spirit. So this is not it's worth not gonna pursuing. Help you grow right. And develop, yeah. Right. And and so so I do that with everybody I can like it's a conscious thing that I turn on and what I often find is that there are certain ways that I value myself highly and therefore value others not so highly but if I have that te- but if I apply that technique I can find the value it, it it switches it it's like man that person who you know doesn't have the thing that I have and that I think is so wonderful and I'm pursuing like I can't do the thing that they do like I can't do that. If I if if I tried for a long time, like I have to put as much work into the stuff that I put in work than that I love in order to get to the level that that person did that. So I have to shut up and humble myself and listen. And that living in that space makes stuff really open it's and great, useful and helpful. It's a great it's a great principle. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great principle that could be. I mean, going back to the question about education. I mean, if more people embrace that as a principle of way of thinking and for growing and developing and being and humbling yourself, I think it would be a, a positive benefit to all society. Yeah. The impossible question we ask, which is, what would your advice be to someone who's maybe at school about to graduate, who's got a dream, a grand ambition, but has been told, forget it, that's impossible? Do it and prepare yourself for the consequences. Because you believe in it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Because you're passionate about it does not mean that it's going to work. What you can do is you can prepare yourself in all the ways that you know how to deal with the consequences of your success or failure. And all of it is kind of on you and what you choose to build around you. That's a great answer. Consequences. Well, okay. A couple of more questions. You talked about books. We like to offer one book to listeners that submit the best comments in the comment section. But you've just given a ton of books. Yeah, yeah. But I do think The War of Art would be one that... You mentioned it early on, mm-hmm. so it's probably a book if you're open with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who should we interview next? Uh, you should interview two people. One is a guy named Mike Scala. 
Three. Another is a guy named Peter Nelson, and the third is a woman named Jasmia Horn. She's probably the, the top jazz singer out right now coming up. Wow, that would be something else. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Right. She's really special. Well, we'll log those. What about the other two? What are they? The other two. Mike Scala is an incredible musician and businessman. He's, yeah, he's just kind of a, a really remarkable person who's done a lot of impossible things with his life. And Peter Nelson is similarly, he's a he's a fantastic musician who overcome like six neurological, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disorders to continue to play music. And like, like without much, like he, he like problem solved his way around these by just researching neuroscience and biology and studying with like a couple of people about like musical technique. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, he's quite brilliant, yeah. The final question is, if you had to go back to one place in history, um, what time, place, and or who? Now I'm going to do the Martin Luther King thing now. I'm glad to be alive now. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't need to, um, if I read enough, then I'm benefiting from all of all those that. points in history <laughs> anyway. Okay. And actually, it's all in the firmament, so okay. subconsciously I'm, I'm dealing and with that. Maybe we've got time for one more, which is, what's the question you wish people would ask, but they never do? can only come up with a glib one why not <laughs> so just wrap up so first of all acknowledge you thank you for coming along and granting this time it's very generous yeah. of you and just acknowledge you for being for stimulating so many ideas and helping everyone that you probably encounter to reevaluate the way they think about their lives to set a higher order level of thinking in areas that most people don't even connect which is math and music yeah. and for just an amazing sense of passion but also the humility that you bring to this field as well and i'm just so grateful and that for merit for connecting us and thank yeah. you for your time oh, thank you for having me okay well thank you very much Thanks. just go to itunes spotify stitcher google podcasts or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate and if you like the show please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us if you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.